this morning, we're going to continue our throwback series. And when we use that word, we're not referring to throwback like an old vinyl record or a classic car, although that's the way we use the phrase modern day. What we're trying to do is to take biblical wisdom, ancient wisdom, and to apply it to life at home. And so just like you would see a clothesline or something like that in a vintage house, uh, we are trying to look at it differently. We're trying to say, okay, what is God's will for our marriages, for our parenting? What is God's will for me as a single person or me as uh, an older person? How do I parent my adult kids? Or how am I as a child supposed to treat my parents? All of those kinds of things, the Bible has a ton of wisdom for us if we're willing to listen. Now today, as we get going, I want to share with you an article that caught me completely off guard. Here was the title. I married myself. It's talking about a young woman named Grace Gelder. She threw a wedding for herself. She made the decision that after years of seeking true love, she hadn't found it yet. And so she decided that she may never find that person. And the person she loved in her life the most at the time was herself. So she decided to go ahead, send out the invitations, get her family there, get the guests there. And if you take a, a look at the link that's there in the Uversion Bible app, you can click on it and you can see pictures of her throwing her bouquet uh, and throwing the garter to her group of friends. And she celebrated uh, her marriage to herself. She says in the article that she talked to her parents and they were supportive. She talked to her friends and they were supportive. But that idea that you can just decide who you marry, what you marry, and that we love ourselves more than we love anybody else. I think it's interesting. A lot of us go into marriage loving ourselves more than anybody else, unfortunately. And so I want us to take a look this morning at what articles like the one I just cited say and how through our, sometimes we'll just say our selfishness, it trips us up to the point that we lose sight of what it is that God is telling us to do, uh, what he's really calling us to do under the rooftop of our homes. When you stand up and you are standing across from a person and you take an oath to, uh, to be with them in sickness and in health and for richer and for poorer, that you do that in front of witnesses and in front of God. And that there, that's not something that should be viewed as handcuffs or anything like that, but in a very strange way, one of those divine uh, serendipities, those things that God alone can do, he takes that sacrament, if you want to use that language, and he allows it to become something that sets you free. It's free from being selfish, free from oneself. So this morning, I want us to take a look in Ephesians chapter 5, if you have a Bible and want to get it open. Uh, and before we read that text, I want to take you to the wild world of Pictionary. Join me. All right. So last week, we played some board games, and they were what you would call quiet games, okay? And, it, and the reason we did it that way is because my own perspective is that games are supposed to be quieter. Those games that you guys scream at and send people like me into the other part of the house because it gives me a headache and everything. But the people have spoken. I took an immense amount of ribbing for that. So this week, I'm going to give you what you want. This week's game, we're going to use Pictionary. Now, Pictionary, if you're not familiar with Pictionary, is a game where you're given a word or something like that, and my job is to draw the word. Your job is to guess what it is. So as I'm drawing it, as soon as you think you know what it is, you can shout it out, okay? So I'm gonna draw, do a little bit of talking as we go. Feel free to play along at home, scream at your television or whatever you wanna do, okay? You two kids, okay? If your parents tell you to be quiet, just ignore them, okay? Here we go. Uh, I'm going to draw some things. You tell me if and when you, you, you think 
you know what it is, all right? So here we go. Bam. What, do you, what is that? It's pretty clear to me. You're going, of course it's a chair. It's a chair, okay? So uh, next, let's see if you can get this one. Well, let's, let's see. What do you think it is? Of course, it's a football, okay? It's a football, duh. All right, here we go. Now, see if you can get this one. If you got the first two, try this one on. How are we doing back there? Any guesses? No guesses. And take a look at it. I mean, it's abundantly clear. It's the Empire State Building, right? I mean, so how could you not get that? I mean, I looks just like it. What are you talking about? See, think about it this way. See, when you're drawing something that's easy, right, like a chair, no problem. People can guess it. It's fine. Football, a little bit more difficult, right? But you can still kind of draw it, right? But, but when it gets a little trickier and it gets a little more complicated, guess what? Our inability to draw really stands out, doesn't it? Uh, some of you are artists. You're like, I could draw the Empire State Building. Maybe you could. But there's always going to be something that's, too complicated. That's so difficult that you can't draw it. And in Scripture, the question isn't really, what does the family look like to me? That's kind of that selfish question, right? The, the biblical question is, what does it look like to God? What does it look like to God? If God were to take the pen in his hand and we said, draw a family, what would it look like? What would it look like? Well, the Scripture answers that question. In Ephesians chapter 5, so I want us to read it together. Join me back with our Bibles. Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 22. So Ephesians 5, 22 to chapter 6, 1 to 4. Let's read together. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body." For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and his church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So right here we get kind of a snapshot that if we gave God the pen and he were drawing on the board, he's given us a picture of what family life looks like. So one question is, if I were to draw my version of it, would God recognize it? And another is, can I recognize it when God draws it? And am I willing to acknowledge it when he gives me this picture? First thing that he points out here is that our lives together are what you might call vertizontal. It's a word I kind of coined to just say it goes up and down and it goes side to side. So our marriages, the way that we parent, all of that stuff, life under the rooftop of our homes is something that has a connection to God first and is connected this way as well. So one of the first mistakes that we often make in looking at family life is believing that it's first a matter of some sort of technique or maybe it's a matter of effort. If I just try harder or if somebody can just give me the right skills, then everything will be just fine. But the Bible kind of looks at it differently. It says who we are, what goes on in here, okay, is the crux of who we become under the rooftop and that there's a very clear purpose for marriage and family life that goes on, and that is to glorify and honor God. And that when a couple gets married, the primary goal of that actually is not happiness, it's holiness. And so we do everything that we do under the watch of God, we do everything uh, under the rooftop there in the sight of God because of who God has created us to be. And my goal in loving my wife as Christ loved the church I'm, the analogy there is that I'm loving her, not just trying to meet her needs, though there's nothing wrong with that. I'm doing it in such a way, I'm loving her in a similar way to how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the way that I treat my wife is not a matter of skill, per se, or just raw effort or willpower. It's a matter of theology. It's a matter of me, when I look at Emily, my wife, of seeing her the way that Christ sees the church as his own body. So going back to the very beginning, when a woman married herself because she loved herself so much, that's essentially kind of what the Bible is saying is, you don't hate your own body, you love yourself, so you need to go love your neighbor as yourself. Your wife is your first neighbor, so to speak. So I go to my wife and I love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the theology behind this is that in the Bible, our relationships with everyone are vertizontal. They go up and down first. I'm doing all of this in the sight of God because of God in order to glorify God. And I do it this way in terms of I'm honoring God by acting this way toward my wife and my children. So when the Bible speaks of family, it speaks of family in very vertical terms, right? That family is connected to and by God. Uh, mom and dad are, are married to one another before God and they're to treat one another the way that Christ <clears throat> that Christ and the church are related. In the same way, children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Uh, and parents are not to provoke their children to anger, but instead to bring them up in the way of the Lord. So whether you're talking about, when we're talking about the family in everyday life and the way that we conceive of the family, the kind of family that we're trying to build, we need to make sure that as we do it, we have God's picture in mind, that he's, he's drawn us something very, very clear and said, this is what a family looks like. And we should be able to recognize it when we see it. So as it's being drawn out in front of us, as we're trying to build it, we know where the target is, we know what it looks like when he draws it on the board. So the question is, when I draw it, 
when I try to put up, here's what I think a family looks like, would God even recognize it? The bigger key is, do I recognize it when he lays it out for me? The best thing that I can do, according to Ephesians 5 and 6, the best thing I can do for life at home is to restore the vertical connection between me and my Heavenly Father. That the way that I treat my family is directly tied to my relationship to God. The stronger and more bountiful that relationship becomes, the better husband I become, the better father I become. And the more that I love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the more I glorify my father in heaven. And it's not just because it makes me a better husband and a father as the Holy Spirit does his sanctifying work in me. It humbles me. It reminds me who my family ultimately belongs to, that my children are God's children first, that my wife is God's daughter before she's my wife. And it swaps out my potential hubris for humility. Number two, family is given first to make us holy, then happy, not happy first. Our expectations have a lot to do with our happiness. It, if we're expecting our families, for instance, to make us happy, then we are going to be disappointed all the time because the family wasn't fundamentally designed just to make us happy. Now, it often does, but the purpose of the family is actually to help make us holy. You can see that throughout that passage there in Ephesians. The concern is that a husband will, as he's acting in a Christ-like way toward his wife and loving her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he is to present her blameless, meaning when I'm going about my life in the home, my concern is, am I helping my wife become more uh, sanctified and more holy in the sight of God. It's a holiness endeavor. And as I do, God is doing things in me. The Christian writer Francis de Sales was often sought for spiritual counsel. And once a, a young woman wrote to him wanting to get married to a certain young man, but was told by a friend that being single would be more holy for her. Francis de Sales responded this way. He said, the state of marriage is one that requires more vir virtue and constancy than any other. It is a perpetual exercise in mortification. From this time plant, in spite of the bitter nature of its juice, you may be able to draw and make the honey of a holy life. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that marriage should never bring joy. It often does. But if I lay the burden on my spouse or on my children to make me happy, then it's going to be very difficult for me to love them the way that Christ loved the church because I see them there fundamentally to provide me with happiness. And so it's in the serving of them that I actually draw the joy of the Lord into my heart and that I bring honor and glory to God. And just like when I serve others, usually that, that, that reciprocity happens or, or that God continues to, to bless me um, because of, of my heart toward the people. In the same way, uh, when I do that, I then re reap the benefits of that. There are very few people out there who, if they were more gentle, more humble, the fruit of the Spirit was more abundant in their life, would end up with a worse marriage. Usually, and Gary Thomas, the spiritual writer, he focuses a lot on marriage and, and family issues, but through the lens of spirituality. He said, couples usually don't fall out of love, they fall out of repentance. I really like that. And it's true. Paul lays out the same link for us. He helps us understand the relationship that family members have among themselves 
in terms of Christ's relationship to the church. It's the relationship of Jesus with his bride that is the model for my relationship to Emily. And that way of seeing her and the family changes the typical rules of marriage away from what you would call felt needs to my deepest needs, to be formed into the likeness of Jesus and to be used by God to help others into the likeness of Christ, my wife and children in particular. So Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her so that, he says, so that she might be sanctified. That's the goal. Wives, submit to and respect your husbands in the Lord. Parents, raise your children in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. All of family life occurs in the Lord. And there, as we seek the kingdom first, day in and day out, the other things that we want, all the happiness and the joy that we, we, we do want to see as a part of our life is added unto us. So we're not anti-happiness, right? That's not what this is about. The problem that we're trying to address is that happy marriage, as it's often referred to, defined romantically and in terms of kind of pleasant feelings, is too often the end game of many marriage books and even, even sometimes Christian marriage books. And that's a false promise. It's a false promise because you will not be able to find happiness at the end of a road called selfishness. You, you just won't. Family life has often become the crucible that, that shapes us into the character of Jesus. As author Gary Thomas writes, instead of getting up at 3 a.m. to begin prayer in a monastery, the question becomes, who will wake up when the baby diaper needs changing? So the holiness of family life, as we're in there serving one another, even the difficult times that come through, especially those of you who have young children, and you know what it's like to not be able to focus on any one thing at a time because you're worried they're going to get hurt or break something or, or do any of that, or, or the baby that won't let you sleep or all of that, that in those moments, God is producing something in us, that there's holiness being cultivated, there's patience being built, there's selflessness that is being uh, cultivated in our hearts, and as we serve our children, we are honoring our Heavenly Father, and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is going on in us. And so our service to our families, when it's done for the sake of Christ, is in fact a sacrament of sorts. It's about our holiness first. That's what God is after more than our happiness, though he's not anti-happiness, if you will. It's about discipleship. And so, we go and we begin by making a willful decision to love our spouses. Making conscious, willful decisions to love and our children. Our children make a willful decision to walk in obedience to what God says here in his word, to obey and honor your parents so that, as he says, you will have a long life on the earth. It's about discipleship. And so we go and we love our wives, we love our husbands, we love our children, we love our parents. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We respect and honor one another. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.22. So when it comes down to it and you're struggling in your marriage, let me encourage you, instead of focusing on what, your, what need of yours isn't being met, Focus on the part of you going on inside that needs to refocus on what marriage is really about. And if you do, most of the time, you'll find that that happiness that you seek and all of that, when, when the focus is put where it ought to be, that it's returned to you in ways that bring honor and blessing. So instead of 
for instance, saying, okay, I'm going to leave a relationship because I'm not happy anymore. We make the decision, I'm going to go love, for instance, my wife or my husband, and I'm going to do it because that's what God calls me to do. I'm not doing it because they're making me happy. I'm not doing it because, um, you know, if I scratch their back, they'll scratch mine. I'm not doing it for any other reason than that vertizontal aspect of the relationship that I've got. And when I love my wife, and I'm committed to loving my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, then I know that I've honored God in that relationship. Lastly, number three, abundant life at home begins with humility before God. Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10, reminds us of something that's very important. It's not necessarily a big pick-me-upper, but it is extremely important when it looks like Uh, When we get down to that point where we need to do something to try and, quote-unquote, fix our marriage or we're having bumpy waters. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Okay, so let's just show you. let's, Let's take a scenario. Let's say that you as a married couple are having difficulty and you go to a um, a particular therapist that doesn't have a biblical worldview. And what, the way the process typically goes is you sit there and they go, okay, tell me how you're feeling. Tell me what's wrong. Tell me what the problem is. And you share it. Then the therapist says, okay, did you hear what she said? Yes, I did. How does that make you feel? He expresses himself. He shares. Did you hear him? Okay. How does that make you feel? All right, and that kind of process continues to where eventually what's landed on is we hurt each other and we are committed to trying to meet one another's needs. Now, again, I want to be very clear. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just incomplete. Because if what Jeremiah says is true and the heart is deceitful above all things, then when I go in, the way that I feel sometimes is not something that needs to be ratified or legitimized. It might be something sinful or prideful that actually needs to be rooted out. So if I'm egotistical, if I'm narcissistic, if I'm whatever, and I go in there and I express that you need to meet my egotism or my narcissism or whatever it is, and you agree to do that, you are starting to preserve things in me you don't want to preserve. That sometimes my needs are not all legitimate. And sometimes what I need is somebody to simply say, enough, Tim. Or to point out that I've got sin in my heart that needs to be rooted out. And the last thing that I need is to be um, satiated in some way. That those feelings need to be legitimized and fossilized and put into stone in the context of our marriage. And sometimes that stuff needs to be rooted out and sent packing and put far, far, far away. I mean, how about trying something better first, right? If the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things, who can know it, that God searches the heart, then I'm not going to try to go to a model that would help accommodate my sin. I need to be in a relationship with my spouse that's not vicious or mean or anything like that, but that they are genuinely seeking my righteousness, not just to make me feel better, because some of those things that make me feel better are not great things. My heart is sometimes deceitful, as Jeremiah points out. So I need somebody who's really seeking God's will to be done in my life. And yes, they want to make sure that they're meeting my needs. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it's incomplete. It's not a foundation on which you can build. And it's not what Paul says when God's got the pen and he's drawing what the family looks like on the board for us. My felt needs are not at the top of the list. What is at the top of the list is an encouragement for me 
to pick up the basin and the towel, to pick up my cross daily and serve my spouse. And if I'm not happy, I can confess, I can do certain things, but I'm going to start by asking the hard questions about what's going on in here. Because ultimately, when you're, when you're dealing with uh, the body language, if you will, of marital strife, okay, the answer is here, maybe here, not here with your hands on your hips. Uh, it's not, you know, like this, like throwing something at somebody or whatever. The body language of reconciliation under the rooftop of a godly home starts with humility and repentance. And it starts with an unbreakable and unshakable commitment to following the way of Jesus and to loving one another out of reverence for Christ. My reverence for my wife or hers for me on its own isn't strong enough. It's not strong enough. Might be strong, it's not strong enough. It has to start with my bond to my heavenly father and the righteousness that I've received uh, as a recipient of the grace of God. I don't want to be in a relationship where we become two totally wonderfully codependent sinners. I want us to be a couple that is helping encourage one another into righteousness. And as we do, then all those other things, as we seek the kingdom first, will be added unto us. Eugene Polly lived his entire life in the Chicago area where he worked for Zenith. That's an old TV company. I don't think they're even around anymore. He worked there for 47 years. Now, this guy changed your life, whether you want to admit it or not. In 1950, he released a product that was called, at the time, Lazy Bones. Not a very flattering topic, but also apropos. We know it today as the remote control. Remote control changed everything. It gave us the freedom to eat Oreos instead of having to get up and go to the television. And so at the time, he had in mind that it would help handicapped people, that it would help people who had a hard time getting to the TV to turn, but he had no idea that essentially all of society would be transformed by things being done remotely. I mean, even right now, we're broadcasting remotely, right? Well, it all started here with old lazy bones, Eugene Polly himself. At one point in his life, he had really high uh, you know, hopes for his invention. He said, maybe I did something for humanity like the guy who invented the flush toilet. But although the TV remote has helped the disabled and the elderly, it's also been blamed for contributing to all sorts of things, including obesity, sparking marital spats. You ever done that? Somebody wants to change the channel or they keep changing the channel, causing many TV viewers to zone out as they channel surf. So John Ortberg once half-jokingly wrote, life without the remote control is an unbearable burden for the modern American family. Toward the end of his life, Polly seemed to regret some of those negative consequences that had come with it. He had no idea they were going to be there. Here's the point. You can't build a God honoring family from a distance. You can't do it from a distance. It's hands-on. It's one of those things that you've just got to do it. It starts here and then goes here. There's no cheat code. There's no quick fix. If you've got a problem going on in your marriage, we want to encourage you in every way that we can as a church. New Vintage Church wants to invest in your family. So whether it's your marriage or your parenting, we want to announce to you this morning, and we're very pleased to be able to provide this to you for free. Okay, this is not free stuff, okay, but it's free here at New Vintage for you. It's a way of us investing in your family. We're going to provide some new resources from expert Jim Burns for all stages of family life completely free. Okay, so these are all in a format that you can do either at home or online. And so in the parenting realm, there are courses 
uh, on doing life with adult children, understanding your teen, confident parenting. There's, there are courses for people that have little guys, little, little guys and little gals, uh, and how to kind of get through that, that zone in an abundant way in your marriage. Uh, on the marriage front, the first few years of marriage, refreshing your marriage, and all of these are available online. You can go to newvintagesd.org slash events and sign up right there. And we would love to be able to serve you by helping equip you to have your marriage become more Christ-centered and more abundant. So I hope that right now or very soon, at some point in the next 30 minutes, you'll go over there and you'll sign up for one of those. And it's our privilege to be able to provide that for you absolutely free. When I say that marriage is a sacrament, okay, and what he says there in Ephesians chapter 5 reminds us of the delicate and beautiful and holy relationship that Jesus has with the church. So right now we're going to take communion. And in that uh, powerful moment, we remember these words of Paul, of the great love that Christ had for the church and that he gave himself up for us. Okay, that's the model for marriage that you get in the New Testament. That's when God has the pen in his hand and he is drawing it. You can look at that and you see the relationship and the love between Christ and the church and you go, ah, I get it. I see it. I see it. Well, we're taking the bread and the cup in just a moment. And when we do, I hope these words echo in your ear. If your spouse is nearby, let those words come to mind. Look at them. Pray with them. If it's your children and you've got a difficult relationship with your kids, pray together. As we gather around the Lord's table, as we take the bread and the cup, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love you, we worship you, we adore you. And right now, as we take the bread and the cup, we remember the words of the Apostle Paul. We remember, Father, that Jesus gave us the example for how to love one another and demonstrating his great love for us on the cross. And so now, as we take this opportunity to remember him and to share communion together in hundreds and thousands of homes, even all around the United States and actually the world, Father, may the words of Paul ring in our ears. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. May this be our guiding passage this morning. Father, we love you, we worship you, we adore you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who laid his life down for us. Amen.